Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the Demcast Network. I'm Kimberly Johnson, still quarantined in D.C., and today my guest is Bob Seska. He is my boyfriend. And he is also the host of the Bob Seska podcast, as well as he writes for Salon, he writes for the Daily Banter. We're going to talk about a little tiny bit about politics at the start, but then we move into personal questions about his life. So, you know, he's done all kinds of things in his life. He, he's been in animation. He's designed album covers for Yes. He's been a disc jockey. He's been on the radio. I mean, he's just, he, he, we didn't get to the film that he made. He did make a film, but there, there was a couple things that I missed. But overall, and then the last thing that we talked about was his collection of, of different pieces of movie movie characters, paraphernalia, statues, stuff like that. So we're going to talk about that. And it was a good conversation because I think that I was slightly worried, like, oh my God, what am I going to ask him? And he made fun of me that for, for wondering what I would ask him. But, I, you know, you live with someone and you're used to, you know, their story. So even though I recognize that not everybody who's listening to this listens to his show or knows his whole story. I know his story, so I was like, "How do I? How do am I going to do this?" So I figured it out, <laughs> and and it was a really fun show. So before we get into that, just wanted everyone to know, Start Me Up Podcast is an independent podcast supported by listeners, and it's woman run. I don't have corporate backers. I don't use advertisers, and it's patrons who keep this show going. Basically, if you like today's show, go ahead and take a look. Go to Patreon.com/slash/StartMeUp. Take a look at the About section. You'll see the format of the show, which is primarily politics. Occasionally, I interview actors who talk about their craft. But even when I interview actors, we still kind of squeeze in some political things. But most of the time, I talk to political people. Sometimes I talk to former federal prosecutors like Glenn Kirshner. But I've interviewed a lot of different people. I love to talk about politics. So if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron for any dollar amount. So like if you start for $2 a month, you can listen to the shows, get the feel. And if you want to upgrade later, you can do that. I do two free shows every week on Mondays and Wednesdays. And then I do two patrons only shows a month. Those are usually recorded either on a Tuesday or a Thursday. And then after every free show, I do Kimberly's After Party, which is just whatever I feel like talking about on that day. So there's no rhyme or reason to what I'm going to talk about. It's just whatever comes. Sometimes I have things planned. Like today I had nothing planned. I just went with whatever came at the top of my head. So you could sign up for $2 a month and then this is how it works. I've got the two free shows and then I do the two patrons only shows. If you sign up for $4 or less per month, you get one of those patrons only shows and the two free shows delivered to your email box. If you sign up for $5 or more, you get everything. You get all the Kimberly's after parties, which I do after every free show you get, and you get both of the patrons only shows that I usually record with Steph Walton and then, of course, the two free shows. So that's how that works out. Just visit, again, patreon.com slash startmeup. And you can also make a one-time donation by checking out the text in the Patreon description of every show. I always include my email address that is attached to my PayPal account. And you can also find Start Me Up on Stitcher, iTunes, wherever podcasts are found. Just stop by. Whether you're going through the iTunes app, go to Apple Podcasts, and please, while you're there, become a subscriber because it's free. Give me a rating, and then please give me a review because I need reviews. And you don't have to write long reviews, just anything to let people know that you're a fan of the show. 
I appreciate everybody who's done it. And I thank you in advance for doing it because I always ask this question and I always check and there's usually new, you know, either reviews or new ratings. So I do really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I am so grateful. Okay, so now enjoy my conversation with Bob Seska. Welcome to the show, Bob Seska. Oh, hi. <laughs> I thought you were going to do an introduction because I was just I was sitting tight waiting for the show to start. No, like, oh, I, re- I record Hello. those after I do everything else. You know what's crazy about this is we're recording in separate rooms <laughs> and we're in the same place. We're in the same apartment. I know because I didn't want to do it in your office just because then I wouldn't feel like I had control. You know what I mean? And you know what? I would do the same thing. (laughs) I would do the exact same thing. Only I have a microphone set up for you in my office. I know. But it's just that whole thing of like, I need to feel like my normal self. Otherwise, I feel like you're in control. So I need to be in control. Okay. Well, I'll accept that. (laughs) This is not the first time you've been on my show because you used to produce it. And we, we used to record it in your office and occasionally oh, yeah. you would come on. And I do think that I I interviewed, I don't know if I interviewed you, but you were on my show at least once. I don't think I've ever been interviewed, though. No, you haven't been interviewed, so there's no. that. So I have okay. all kinds of questions for you. And then, of course, there's questions that other people asked. Mm-hmm. But first, before you know, I have said on my show that I am kind of sick of politics, which yeah. I am. So I'm. I mean, of course. I mean, I'm still paying attention to politics, and I, and I'm sick of. I'm sick and tired of wondering about Trump. Blah 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 blah. We all know that. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about politically, because like this, the shows this week, and then the shows that I've done in the last couple of weeks have been more fun shows, right? So and we're going to get to the fun stuff a little bit later. But okay. I do want to talk about this very fascinating and semi-controversial within the liberal crowd. Steve Schmidt reaching out to AOC. And I, I first want to preface this <laughs> with um, okay. David Weissman, who is an, a, a former MAGA turned mm-hmm. into an Elizabeth Warren Democrat, now works for Lincoln Project. Okay. I saw that he tweeted to her a while back and he wanted to kind of like, you know, an olive branch to reach out for her. And I don't obviously I don't know if this was just his idea, if this was something he ran by Lincoln Project. I would imagine he ran it by them. If it, mm. it, you know, if they didn't say, "Hey, why don't you reach out to her?" Then it was something that he came up with. I don't know what the details of, of why he did it, but so he did reach out to her, and I commented and said, "You know, I wanted, I tagged her and said that he had been on my show two times. He is the real deal, and he can be trusted." And I, I don't think she got back to him. So the other night, I was checking, my, of course, my phone because I'm an addict. Yeah, <laughs> and, of course. And I see that. <laughs> I see that Steve Schmidt did this long ass thread reaching out to her. And the first, I don't exactly remember everything he said, but the first thing that he tweeted that was that, you know, she gets shit for being a waitress from the Republican Party. And he's like, we respect waitresses. And he, you know, he, what I saw from this whole thing was that he, he was basically acknowledging her power. And he was to what you said to me earlier, said they're on her turf now. Yeah, they're on the yeah. turf of the Democrats. And mm-hmm. so, th- you know, they, they are looking to form this broad coalition. And in my opinion, I've been skeptical about the Lincoln Project. And, and you know, when I say that, I've still shared their stuff. I've still shared 
tweets of Rick Wilson, who I think who has been personally rude to me on more than one occasion. <laughs> I think all the Lincoln Project guys have been rude to you, on, <laughs> except for David Weisman. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, yeah, Steve Schmidt was on my show, and he was kind of a little bit of a dick, but, I mean, he wasn't terrible. He wasn't a mm. mean jerk, but, you know, I, he, he blamed Democrats for Trump. And it's like, really? You're mm, going right. to do that? Anyway, I've talked about that so many times. So, anyway, yeah. I don't like them all the time. You know, I, I appreciate what they say. But I don't necessarily like them, and I and I kind of looked at them like, hmm, I don't know mm. if I should trust you. So yeah. they they have admitted that, or like they, one of the guys from the Lincoln Project said that they were, you know, thank you, 126 Republicans for exposing who you are, so we can go after you in the midterms. So that tells me that they're going to be our friend in the midterms, even if it's just you know conservatives going after conservatives, if if it's yeah. that kind of a thing. So anyway. I'm just, you know, I wanted to get your take on it. I mean, I obviously I know your take on it, but I still want to discuss it with you a little bit because I found it to be refreshing. And I, I certainly hope that AOC makes an effort. And the last thing I'll say is that if they can find common ground and make friends there, you know, the Lincoln Project is not going to attack her. And that's no, that's the not. way I look at it. Like, I don't want them to attack Democrats. I don't yeah, care yeah. if they're centrist. Because you know what? It's a big tent and we all have different ideas about shit. But overall, just don't attack the Democrats. So, mm -hmm. you know, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I, I have two trains of thought on this. One is cynical and one is <laughs> practical. The, the cynical thought is, you know what? Steve Schmidt is a political operative and he mm -hmm. needs to work. He's no longer a part of the Republican Party, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, he's obviously sought employment among independent candidates, certainly at least one, Howard Schultz. <laughs> but I think what he's seeing is that the real money for <laughs> someone who is, uh, uh, you know, of his career path, is on the Democratic side mm -hmm. because, well, duh, that's the only game in town anymore. But And that's my cynical point of view. Uh, Steve Schmidt has to work. Steve Schmidt knows you can buy things with money and has to, therefore, earn money in order to maintain his yeah. various lavish kitchens. Got, <laughs> yeah, kitchens. We've these three or four <laughs> Steve Schmidt kitchens. And, and I they're assume, all very nice, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I assume that he's got, like, several cabins in, like, Jackson Hole, Wyoming or something like that. One in the, the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. And, when he's talking about Hillary Clinton... Hillary Clinton in the mountains. Um, but the practical view of all of this, it, it makes perfect sense, and I was so glad to see him do this. He understands that the Democrats, even I said on my cynical uh, perspective on the issue, um, the Democratic Party is the only game in town. The Democratic mm -hmm. Party is the faction of the normals. We've got this broad Biden coalition that we need to maintain at all costs mm -hmm. through any legal means in order to make sure that we're constantly defeating this uh, this group of fascistic weirdos that is the uh, the Trump movement the maga movement yeah. the red hats and if we let our guard down for a minute which means infighting which mm -hmm. means undermining ourselves which means primary challenging sitting democrats when we start doing that we're going to start losing to these people and we've seen what happens when we lose to these people I know. um yeah. we've we've <laughs> endured four years of it through great pain and great sacrifice and we can't allow them a seat at the table again and certainly they still have one at least as of right now mm -hmm. provided uh we don't win the january 5th runoff mm -hmm. in georgia you know, Mitch McConnell still has a place, and Mitch mm -hmm. McConnell's just as steeped in Trumpism as Trump is. 
Uh, he's just a, as much a benefactor of it, certainly a benefactor of Russia, certainly the benefactor of a lot of villains in our world right now. And so that is already in place. We lost seats in the House. We did yeah. not take back the Senate. We did not flip any state legislatures, as we should have. Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> the, the thing that needs to happen from this point forward is to continue that. And in fact, haven't I been saying for a long time now that the Biden coalition, you've got the never Trumpers on the right of this coalition, all the way down to the Elizabeth Warren Democrats on the left, and everyone in between. Mm -hmm. That yep. is a gigantic, yes. a, a huge, massive tent. And in order to maintain victories, in order to win election after election, which should be the number one priority yes. of every single person in this country, short, I mean, obviously the Trumpers um, are just wait, beating down the door, waiting to come back in. So we have to keep winning. That's mm -hmm. the only way uh, we're able to get anything done anymore. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the yeah. only way we're going to secure our democracy in this country. So... What Steve Schmidt did was made a first overture from the rightmost portion of the Biden coalition all the way down to the leftmost portion. And by the way, I don't continue, uh, consider people like Ryan Knight and Glenn Greenwald and Michael Tracy right. and those guys to be part of this coalition. No. They have deliberately withdrawn from this, mm -hmm. and yet they still expect to have a voice in it, which mm -hmm. is completely incongruous to me. I don't know why they can they believe that people are supposed to listen to them when they have deliberately taken themselves out of the conversation. And that's certainly what, uh, what they have done. So yes. what we're talking about is a, a giant tent that needs to proceed forward like a juggernaut and mow down all opposition in its path. I mean, that is the top priority, and, and we cannot let our guard down uh, because we know. We know exactly what happens when we do. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a Warren Democrat. I think that, I mean, I, I don't consider uh, the Ryan Knight crowd, like, they call themselves progressives and all that. I, I don't think they are because in order to have progress, you have to understand how government works and you yeah. have to understand that, and, and this is what I really like because Ryan Knight is part of that whole, I think it's called the People's Party. And so the People's Party is calling on demanding that AOC not vote for Nancy Pelosi as House Speaker un unless she goes for Medicare for All. And I think it's Jimmy Dore who's calling for this or something, and they're all like, well, Jimmy Dore's saying it, so... But, so so oh, anyway... Yes, Jimmy Dore. Jimmy Dore is the authority, the standard-bearer. Right. So, Jimmy Dore doesn't know anything. Right. Jimmy Dore is a fucking idiot. But interestingly... Okay, so it was the People's Party tweet, right? And then mm -hmm. AOC came on, and she started to engage with them, and she said something like, well, okay, here's the problem. You throw out that threat... And then if you don't get what you want, then where are you left? And basically she's saying what I want to do is, is I want to, you know, I want progress. I want to be mm -hmm. able to get people $15 an hour. I want to be able to get people health care, affordable health care. And so, of course, that's when they turned on her. And it's true. It's like you can't, you can't keep your little purity test and, 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 be, and fight the establishment you're with, if you're going to get any progress done, and they just don't seem yeah. to understand that, you know, blah, 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 we all know. But I was happy to see, I mean, I don't know what her her situation is with Steve Schmidt. I would imagine that if she didn't get a call from Nancy Pelosi, maybe if I were her, I would want to talk to Nancy Pelosi and just ask her, you know, what her opinion is. Whether mm -hmm. or not she follows the advice of Pelosi, I would still want to know. And 
I, I, it'll be interesting to see what follows, and I think AOC would be smart to find that common ground with the Lincoln Project. Obviously, you know, because he straight up said they're not going to agree on everything. That's fine. We don't have to agree on everything as long as we can win the elections. If we can and win the, the way, election, she can progress. I wanted to toss in here. You, you mentioned Jimmy Dore a second ago. Yeah. I just noticed that he, <laughs> socialist Jimmy Dore, man of the people, Jimmy Dore, just spent $1.9 million on a brand new rambling L.A. compound. Oh, well, look at <laughs> just, that. Yeah, in Studio City, no less. And well, so, fuck yeah. him. <laughs> fuck I wonder, Jimmy uh, Dore. Yeah, I wonder how many socialists pay uh, $1.9 million for their L.A. Right, and compounds. I'm sure he has a pool and his nice laptop and all that yeah, good stuff yeah. that, you know, they're acting like, oh, you're so horrible for having all that stuff. Fuck I'm sure them. no corporations went into the construction exactly. of that house either. No, no corporate <laughs> money, no corporate no, resources. No, he built nothing. it with wood he found on the street. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. He went around and found some junk, some random. And I'm going to make me a house for $1.9 yeah. million. <laughs> yeah, some uh, uh, scrap yards. Oh, just my God. Cobbled it all together with nails and some duct tape. <laughs> Those fucking people. Well, and the other good thing is if, if AOC and the Lincoln Project types can, can, can find that common ground, then it makes the threat of the People's Party and whatever, you know, just the Jill Steins so much less. It's almost gone. Yeah. You know, so anyway. Okay, Not that's enough. Money. That's enough for fucking politics today. So, oh, uh, <laughs> good. Okay. Great. <laughs> um, okay, so I have a bunch of things that I want to talk to you about, and eventually okay. I do want to get to your past careers and also the stuff that's <laughs> yeah. on your shelves in your office. But be before... <laughs> <laughs> the two most important topics for me. Yes, thank you. <laughs> but before we go there, I want to I ask you... You know, just as a blogger, as a podcaster, somebody writes for Salon, all that stuff. What do you think, what do you see in your criticisms is the, mis big, or is the biggest misconception about you? Oh, my God. That's a <laughs> really good question. I, I think the biggest misconception is that I'm a, a Democratic Party apparatchik. <laughs> I get that quite a bit. Yeah. And I don't really have any allegiance to the Democratic Party. I do understand I, I'm a registered Democrat, so to that extent I am. Mm -hmm. But I don't. Um, you know, I don't rubber stamp everything the Democratic Party says. If I say something that happens to coincide with the Democratic Party platform, which is, you know, several things, mm -hmm. the, to, to, to be sure, uh, that's only coincidental. It's not, I'm not someone who looks at a slate of a menu of things and go, okay, I'll just go along with all that. You know, it just, it, there's crossover, there's Venn diagram overlap, but it uh, has little to do with some sort of blind loyalty. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing along those lines. But quite often I get that, where, oh, you're just a Democrat, you're a corporate shill, corporatist mm -hmm. Democrat, you're, you're a corporate horse centrist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's such nonsense. I mean, I mean, I guess in um, the most simplistic way, you could call me an Obama Democrat. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm kind of... If you were to have to pigeonhole me into one set of ideas, one set of values, I guess the closest I would be is to uh, Barack Obama, mm -hmm. um, which is not a bad thing to be close to, <laughs> you, you know, uh, for obvious reasons. But, um, yeah, I would say that's that's the biggest misperception. Also, um, I guess to that extent, I also get this a lot where people say that I'm an Obama bot, you know, and, and I like to joke around about that. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't I don't like 
uh, aligning myself blindly to right. anyone. I, I don't like being a disciple, which is one of the reasons why I use the word disciple quite often referring to Trump supporters, mm -hmm. because they are disciples. Yeah. They don't question a goddamn thing Donald Trump says. They go along with this maniac, irrespective of how he behaves, irrespective of how damaging he is. They just worship along with him as disciples typically do. But I, I just refer to I, I just refuse to consider myself part of that, um, at least on the left side of the ledger, part of that kind of mentality where, you know, it's just rah rah team and nothing else. Right. Well, I'll say this that, you know, when when we got together, it was well, f we got together before Bernie announced, but when, you know, yeah. it wasn't that long before. So Bernie announced he was my candidate. And I think, I think you were kind of like just checking things out. At least that's what I had the impression of. You're like, okay, let me check out Bernie. Let me check out Hillary. Hillary. Eventually you were more supportive of Hillary and, and that led to some frustrating conversations. And I would say <laughs> that's mainly because I did misunderstand where you were. I mean, I kind of understood it, but I got caught up in the, the Russian bullshit. Mm -hmm. um, I also, you know, I mean, politics feels personal because it is. And so it, 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 it was, I was confused as to why you weren't seeing things the way I was seeing them. And yeah. later I figured it out that it was, and, and it was something that you had said and made clear, but it, what, it didn't really click until, I don't know, it, I don't know why or how it clicked, but it was like your whole thing was who can win. Yeah. And she had the money, she had the backing of the Democratic Party, she had that, and, and when I say establishment, that's such a dirty word, but she was an establishment, actually so is Bernie, I mean, he, because he'd been around forever, and, yes, you know, maybe, maybe he wasn't um, always in line with the Democratic Party, some, you know, he has voted, uh, not against them, but not with them every time, but still, he was part of the establishment as well, and then turned establishment into, the, into a dirty word. And, mm -hmm. and, and I fell for a lot of that because I was following the groups that were penetrated by Russian bad actors. And, and, and you know, the, I, I was, you know, I've, I've said this so many times on the show on yours and mine. So it's not that I was overly I, I wasn't one of those people that never I wasn't a bro. You know, just I wasn't a bro. I was just I really cared very much. And so I misunderstood and I was frustrated because I felt like what Bernie was saying was that 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 he cared and yeah. and and, I, and so i just i couldn't understand that you know why people were going after him later mm -hmm. I, I i did understand and and i you know i i i recognize where i was a manipulated by that by that disinformation mm -hmm. and that i was somewhat naive too because you've been in politics for a really really long time and I started becoming vocal about politics in 2012. And prior to that, it was something I paid attention to, but it wasn't something that I was immersed in. I wasn't a political junkie. And you've been a political junkie for a long ass time. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, and that's going to take me to, um, you were originally a Republican. So um, I just want to hear a little bit about that and why did you become a lib turd? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, this is, uh, I, I hope I don't make this story too terribly long. <laughs> Um, but I, yes, I was a Republican, identified as a Republican um, when I was in high school. I mean, so this is a <laughs> long, long time ago. I mean, we're talking about 35 something years ago. Um, and it was, 
brought about by limited perspective mm-hmm. uh, and naivete. I just landed. I mean, you talk about the in terms of my wait, 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 wait. It 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 flipped out. Okay, you you left. So go back to your high school. So you were naive, and go ahead. I was I was naive. It was uh, uh, out of naivete, and it was also out of uh, uh, just uh, not having a very limited perspective mm-hmm. on the world. I was raised in a Catholic household, both capital C and small C. So it was a very conservative mm-hmm. uh, upbringing, very typically suburban upbringing. Uh, went to Catholic church. I mean, there was one period of time in fifth grade where. You know, I thought maybe I'd even like to be a Catholic priest, for God's sake. <laughs> and I, because, you know, all my friends were all altar boys, yeah. right? So we were all altar boys, and we knew how to say the masses. We knew mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, the, the step-by-step process to going through a Catholic mass and so on. And so we would practice that, and, you know, it was just, it was insane. But, I mean, you fast forward to 10th, 11th grade, somewhere around there, and there was a lot of influence from people like uh, Alex P. Keaton and, yes, you know, yeah, in the right. 1980s, yeah. the Republican. Republican style or Reagan style Republicanism was all the rage. It was supported by almost everybody. I mean, 1984, he won 49 Mm -hmm. states. So I got wrapped up into all of that uh, mistakenly. Uh, But I, you know, in a sense, I regret that I was fished in by it. But in another sense, it started me off on my interest in politics. And so, you know, and uh, I think it was the tail end of 11th grade, I started. my high school's chapter of the Young Republicans Club. <laughs> I mean, I was really, really into it. But um, it was, I, I hate to p- describe myself like this, but it was it was more performative than anything. Right. It was just like a thing. And, I, you know, and I, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't about um, also impressing my parents or trying mm-hmm. to get distract my parents from the fact that I also had long hair and was into heavy metal music. <laughs> so I felt in a way that um, right. having these conservative ideas would balance out the fact that my parents were like, what the fuck is Bob doing? Why is he listening to that demonic music and wearing his hair so long? And, and so that was my calculus uh, with all of that. And, of course, as soon as I graduated and went on to college, that's when I was exposed to the real world, not only academically, but living on my own. I think uh, socializing in college is like 85% of the experience, uh, where the rest of it is the actual learning. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that process, I was liberalized. And it's not because necessarily the liberal institution. I mean, it was a relatively middle-of-the-road state college mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. and uh, But still, I had some very... Uh, Excellent professors, especially in my first year, some inspirational professors, almost like Dead Poet Society inspirational. And uh, in that sense, just getting a real uh, feeling for how the world operated and learning actual facts and discovering what what specifically made uh, American democracy, what made our republic work and function from not only an historic perspective, but also a systemic modern one. Mm -hmm. So it was all of those things combined. And the evolution from being a a naive but self-identified conservative into being uh, much more liberal, so that by 1992 I was campaigning for Paul Songus during the primaries, and then uh, and then Bill Clinton during the general election. So I had made that evolution, and I always find it interesting when I see 
certain characters changing their ideology overnight or changing their party affiliation overnight. Like, I was a conservative Republican yesterday, but today I'm a liberal Democrat. I'm a progressive. <laughs> well, I find that to be bullshit. Right. Because from my own experience, in order for your values to change significantly like that, it takes time. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an evolutionary process. Yeah. You start to peel away some of the things as you're learning. You start to peel away some of the bullshit and finally you discover, oh, this is what my, what my values are really all about. This is where I uh, belong. This is how I really feel about these things yeah. now that I'm learning about how they work. So that was kind of the process. I would say it took a, you know, a good two, three years before I really felt like I was identifying as a, as a liberal Democrat. Well, I mean, I can go back to David Wiseman again, who was who was a MAGA, and you know, he became a Warren Democrat, and, and the same thing. I think yeah. I think it took him about a, a year for him to realize he was a Democrat, but he was questioning along the way, and it was it it, it was a fascinating journey, and I, and I think he's you know again he's with LP now, he's with the Lincoln Project, yeah. and I I think that his his exploration has made him such a strong uh, he's like a he's a hardcore democrat because instead of like for me i grew up listening to my mother who was always a democrat uh, she was political and i wasn't political but i would hear her mm -hmm. talking god especially during the bush years she was fucking going insane as so were you, you know you were going insane yeah, on huffington yeah. post but she was like i would talk to her and at that point i was paying attention because the hanging chad thing was one of the turning points in my political evolution i mm. wasn't i knew i was a democrat but i still didn't fully understand everything i just understood the basics and so my mother was just like losing her fucking shit and you know and and, and i would listen to her and and i knew that she knew what she was talking about mm -hmm. but i didn't come to being a democrat because i was a republican so it's like when you come from the other side of it i think it makes you even more you have a stronger feeling or you have um i don't know exactly how to say it but it's just that yeah. you really really mean it you know what i mean like it's like oh, yeah, oh. Yeah. Well, in fact a, a lot of the people i really respect that i uh, often interact with online um were former republicans at one point or another i mean if you want to look at exactly and you want to kind of put me on the couch and kind of psychoanalyze why i tend to give some um slack to the i kind of offer some slack to the uh the never trumpers is because i understand a bit of what they're going through yeah. that evolutionary process and the same goes for the fact that there are quite a few liberals now who were once conservatives mm -hmm. who i interact with i mean charles right. johnson for little green football yes. is a yeah. great example of that uh for many many years i wrote for ariana huffington at the huffington post and she was a conservative for a while became uh, a liberal democrat um and I, i'm not sure what her journey necessarily was but irrespective of that i mean these are the kinds of people that i find interesting only mm -hmm. because they have an insight yes and, exactly uh, yeah. well, i mean they're good people and so on and i enjoy their their company well, sherry online, jacobus is like that too yeah sherry jacobus is another one i think and she's an I, independent I, but still yeah and i find that we're we're doing ourselves a disservice if we just write them off mm -hmm. because there's a lot to be learned yeah. from 
their perspective and their insight in particular, their insight into how the Republican Party operates, how the modern conservative mm -hmm. movement operates. And how they think, when they yeah. say this is what Trump is doing or this is what mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell is doing, mm -hmm. they're saying that from experience and we should probably mm -hmm. take them seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, take the advice seriously, take the analysis seriously. So I mean I think it's uh, in, I think it's important to remember that some of these people are kind of responsible like for instance joe walsh takes that responsibility and that's one of the things yeah. that i like about him is he's like yes i voted for trump yes i added to the climate and atmosphere that created trump but now i understand what i did and i'm not mm -hmm. uh, you know i mean there are things about joe walsh that frustrate me you know when there are certain whether it's policy things or you know where he puts his attention but overall I feel yeah. that he is a true patriot. I, I know, I mean, he and I will disagree all fucking day long about uh, policy and all of that mm -hmm. and how to get there. And I know he would frustrate the living shit out of me. But the interesting thing is, is that now that we have established a relationship, he's been on my show twice. Plus, we've, I wouldn't say gotten into it on Twitter, but I will definitely go, you know, if he says something that I don't agree with, I'm going to make my opinion known. And he yeah. thanks me for it. And mm -hmm. so I really appreciate that because that one thing Trump has done in, you know, obviously not including all the crazy men who are bending over with anti fuck Antifa on their asses, excluding them. <laughs> but people like David Wiseman, people, you know, I mean, Bill Crystal followed me not too long ago and I was blown away. And I'm not sure why he did. I'm not, I, I don't think he followed me because he wants to be my best friend. But I, but I thought it was kind of interesting that he followed me. And, you know, people like Steve Schmidt, all these people, yes, they did lead to mm -hmm. what took us to Trump. But if they're going to be on our side now and they're going to help, and our side just means the side of people, not even Democrats, just the side of people, because they're mostly, I mean, I know uh, I know David Weissman is a Democrat, but Steve Schmidt is an independent. I don't know. I think Rick Wilson is probably, I don't think they've switched over to being Democrats. And I think they've switched to be, I think they're registered independents. I know Tom right. Nichols is right, right. Uh, registered independent. Okay, and then I think the same thing goes for uh, Joe Walsh, because mm -hmm. he's always saying he's a man without a party. Yeah. But, I, you know, I just want to add in there, if you had decided to, I, I know that I'm speaking for many, if you had decided to become a priest, we would all be <laughs> calling you Friar Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what that reference is. Uh, insert Captain America meme. I know that reference. Yes, it was from Sex and the City when Samantha, yeah. I, I wish I could remember the name of the actor. <laughs> But um, yes. the actor, he that, was the attractive monk or yes. the attractive Franciscan <laughs> missionary. That she, she was into. calling him Friar Fuck. Yeah. And it was so <laughs> funny because she brought him, um, she, she wanted to get a chance to talk to him. And in order mm. to do that, she, she donated food and it was Le Serpies. And she's like, Le Serpies, they're the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure to emphasize that that was merely restricted to fifth grade. I know, I know, I know. I'm just going to start calling you Friar Fuck anyway, though. As That's going to be my new name I for you. I want to start kissing girls. That was the end of that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what do you like to do when you're not having sex with me in the refrigerator? <laughs> <laughs> Is this an outside question? Is this a Twitter question? No. This was actually Stephanie my Miller question. No. Um, no. You know what? Actually, I should go to some of the, the Twitter questions, and I'm going to ask you from Stephanie Walton, my, my podcast buddy. Yeah, she's great. She says, how does Bob feel about Rogue One? 
wrote, oh my God, that question right off the bat? I thought we'd <laughs> never get around to that one. I love Rogue One. I'm, I'm right now, I'm going through one of those phases. You know, I, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I think a lot of people go through this process with certain portions of popular culture, pop mm-hmm. culture. And I think, um, <laughs> in a way, we um, we have these brief love affairs uh, or reoccurring love affairs with our favorite pop culture things, whether mm-hmm. it's music, movies, television shows, what have you. And I'm going through that right now with Star Wars, where hmm. I'm just I'm listening to Star Wars sound. I'm listening to John Williams soundtracks, and hmm. I'm you know I'm I'm looking at uh, eBay and Amazon, and you know thinking of things that I might want to add to my collection and so on. And so yeah, I'm going through that right now. And uh, I I really there are few things that I dislike. Uh, about the Star Wars canon, the, the series of movies and TV shows and things like that. I mean, I'm just, I'm really into that universe. Yeah. I especially like The Mandalorian right now, of course, which is not going out on a limb by any stretch. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah I, I thought mean, Rogue One was great. That. I think they're, they're going to be doing a Cassian Andor uh, spinoff series for Disney+. Plus. I'm looking forward to that. That's based on one of the characters from Rogue One. And so, yeah, that was one of the best uh, of the modern Star Wars movies. I think it was really good. Okay, so then before we get to more of my questions, one more listener question, which is from Jason Writes on His Butt, wants to know, Bob, what's it like to date someone as awesome as Kimberly? <laughs> oh, that's and we're dating every night on the couch, by the way. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, we, what we do is we convene on the couch at a certain point. Yeah. Once the politics goes away, we, we both sit down on the couch and watch TV and, and, uh, and just hang out. Yeah. Um, it's uh, the, to answer your question, Jason. Right on his butt. I I know exactly who this is. Um, and by the way, I don't write on Jason's butt. He <laughs> writes on his own butt. I want to make sure we're clear about that. Uh, yeah, it's 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 of course amazing to Aww. be with Kimberly Johnson, Kimberly A. Johnson. <laughs> well, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and put something into this that, you know, Bob and I are both. Very similar. I mean, we have uh, some differences, clearly. I'm, I, you know, I don't, I'm not as into the Star Wars. <laughs> I'm not like, my mother was a no, full-blown like, Trekkie. Hmm? Yeah, you don't like any of the sci-fi, you don't like the comic book movies, you don't no. like really the Star Wars movies, even though you did go and see The Force Awakens with me and your mom. Yes, because you both yeah, are nerds when it comes to sci-fi. My mom, I mean, yeah. my mom was crazy Trekkie when I was younger. And, I mean, it was to the point where... We had a roommate, and they and I had a TV in my room. So my mom and her roommate Phyllis would sit out in the living room, and they made me bring my television out so they'd have their television on because they wanted to watch Star Trek. And then there was another show that they wanted to watch, so they'd have my television. They have both televisions on at the same time, watching mm-hmm. two different shows, just so they could make sure they watched Star Trek. They were so insanely yeah. crazy with that show. But the thing is, is that we're so alike and even though we have our differences and our different experiences in life, I think it's like for, there's something about our personalities mm-hmm. where we just get each other. Yeah. And the funny I mean, thing is, is we're both, we're both cancers and we both have the rising signs of Pisces. And for whatever that's worth, I just think that it's interesting. And like, we're both kind of uh, solitary people. I think with the, and I know you'll agree with this, that, with COVID, we're, we both feel frustrated and angry. But on the other hand, it hasn't changed our lives so drastically. You no, know what I mean? We're, no. we're both people who like to be home 
and we work from home. So while other people's lives have been seared, you know, I mean, I'm watching the housewives right now of Orange County. And so the season is where they just got hit with COVID. And all these people were stuck in their house for like a month and they were going batshit crazy. And I feel like, okay, you and I have barely left the house. And we're like, (laughs) okay, I mean, we want COVID to go away. But we're as far as being stuck here, we're just like, okay. (laughs) <laughs> We're going to watch some TV That's shows. That's our default. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, our default is to self-isolate. Right. Or to isolate in place. Plus, we dress alike, and we drive the same car. <laughs> so. Exactly. Well, you know, I think one of the things that, uh, and not to get too gushy about this, but, I mean, one of the things I love about you is the fact that uh, you're a live-and-let-live kind of person yeah. where, you know, you're not judgy when it comes to behavior or preferences or anything like that, where I feel like, yeah, I, I can be the unfiltered version of myself and not uh, Me too. have to get necessarily concerned about you going, boo, why, why are you doing that? Why do you why do you like that? Why do you behave like that? It's just like we uh, live and let live. And that's uh, I think that's an important part of having a, a solid relationship, yeah. especially when we're both here all the time. Mm-hmm. 24 <laughs> 7 and we never leave <laughs> so the, i the, the live and let live thing is even more important yeah. now than it ever was before and the last thing that i'll add to it is that you know i'm an extremely uh, my whole life starting from the age of 13 i've been experiencing body hatred and body insecurity and all of this stuff and so you've heard it over and over again anybody who knows me and who has ever known me for the most part knows that it's something that, you know, I talk about. And the reason I talk about it isn't because I'm searching for compliments. I don't believe the compliments. Mm. I I kind of want to make, it's kind of like, because I feel insecure about the way I look or whatever, you know, and it's not 24 seven, but it's a lot. Uh, I almost want to say, yes, I know I'm fat. Yes, I know I have zits on my face. Yes, I know. So, because I feel like- And you you have neither of those things. (laughs) But I mean, I, I feel like, you know, th- when I was alone for my whole life, I, I didn't have a boyfriend. And so I always wondered what it would be like. And, and I was always fearful because I thought just on on my own at home, I made no effort to I, I do make an effort with you. Like I do occasionally, you know, most nights I put on a little bit of makeup. I don't like dress mm-hmm. up or anything, but I, I try. <laughs> but I mean, I, yeah, s- I noticed that. Some, Even though you don't go anywhere, you do you do that. You go through that effort. Yeah. And I and I mean, I shave my legs and everything. So it's like I, I make the effort. But but yeah. even sometimes I don't, you know, sometimes it's just like whatever. I don't feel like it. My back hurts and I don't want to bend over to wash my face later at night. Whatever the and reason me, I is. I look like uh, I look I typically look like Tom Hanks in the second half of Castaway. <laughs> yes. So every night. Right. I don't of take course. care of myself at all. I just let myself go. <laughs> but it's like you understand. And not yeah. only that, I, I used to think. I, I was so hard on myself, or I can be so hard on myself, that I thought that that version of me home alone, making no effort, would never fly. Mm-hmm. That I that I would never be accepted or loved. And so meeting you and being with you, I, I, I do make an effort, and I don't look like that every night, but there have been plenty of times where I have been that version of myself where I just don't even make the effort at all. And you know, you're so kind and you tell me that I'm beautiful or whatever it is. And it's very, it it, it helps me because I, you know, you say that I am accepting and all that and not judgy. Well, the same goes for you. And I feel that I can just be my true self, which I never, honestly, I never honestly believed that that was possible. 
So anyway, yeah. gush, well, gush, I, I gush. I feel like, you know what? We're both, we're both grownups yeah. and, you know, we, we, we're middle-aged and why waste the rest of the time that we have? Yeah dealing with interpersonal games and trickery uh, right, you know, yeah. relationships that are based on that where there's constant negotiating and uh, you know back and forth and headbutting and not really having a, a clear understanding of the other person is just a is just kind of a waste to constantly be evaluating and nitpicking too is yeah just what's not, the point of that i mean i just yeah, i'd rather well, be alone I mean, exactly yeah why why are you in this relationship yeah. that you clearly hate yeah. you know that's and I don't want to. I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's not what I'm looking to spend the uh, next forty, hopefully fifty years of my life doing. Yes. <laughs> okay. So now another subject. Okay. So basically, you have spent the majority of your life, from my understanding, uh, analyzing and writing politics or having something to do with politics. I mean, even yeah. when you were when you know what what was your major? Political science. There you go. Okay, yeah. so um, you've you've been on. You were a regular on the front page of Huffington Post. You were even yeah. in that block, that A block or whatever they call. It. I don't know what they call. Yeah, it. they used to put me in the Ariana Huffington spot, like right. where her blogs would show up. Uh -huh. It was it was right under the headline area. There was like a, a left side vertical that, uh, and she would appear at the top of that. I got to be in that spot every Wednesday, so that was really nice of them. Yeah, to do so that. you've definitely had this major career in politics at least analyzing writing about talking about and then even you've been on television shows or i should say news programs as a pundit and uh you've done all that but before you were a political animal and 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 making and, and of course doing your podcast which we we can't forget yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah coming up on 10 years that's that, incredible that's I really think so, awesome i think it's in march will be 10 years since i've been doing this show different wow. titles different uh, right. co-hosts but the same show basically yeah so so before that i know that you were in radio and i want to ask you one thing about that but you, you know and then you were in animation and then you've designed album covers like for the rock band yes You've done other videos, so let's get into that, but let's just go with the radio because that's what you did out of college. But before we, before you did that, you used to set up, t talk about the setup in your room. <laughs> oh, God. By the way, I just screwed up. It was 10 years ago last March. Oh, okay. You know, now it'll be 11. Just, yeah, 2020 is just fucked with my brain. Yes, I don't it know. Does. I'm just kind of writing it off as an actual year. It's just, we're going to skip over. It's going to go right from 2019 to 2021. And by the way, Trump gets an asterisk next to his name yes. in the list of presidents. But uh, that, what you're talking about is... Um, when I was a kid, and it started maybe when I was nine or ten years old, um, WKRP in Cincinnati oh, was right, on the air, yeah. and I just I fell in love with the, the concept today. of radio. I mean, we used to wake up to go to school every day with Harden and Weaver on WMAL AM sixty three in Washington D.C., <laughs> and so we would wake up to that wacky. Uh, in the case of Harden and Weaver. It was a wacky, mainstream, kind of family-oriented morning show where they used mm -hmm. to do a morning march and all the rest of it, and Jackson Weaver would do kind of silly voices. But then um, WKRP came along, and that really appealed to me as, as something that I'd want to do, especially Howard Hessman's character, yes. Dr. Johnny Fever. <laughs> and so I wanted to be Dr. Johnny Fever. So I had a, a little boom box that I got for my 10th <laughs> birthday, and I had a, a record player, uh, and I had just a couple of records. I had... Um, one of those records with all the silly songs on it, like On Top of Spaghetti and The Hole at the Bottom <laughs> of the Sea, songs like that. 
And uh, I had that, and I had Free to Be You and Me. Aww. I had. I also had a bunch of albums by Barry Lewis Polisar, who was a, a, a comedy folk singer from the <laughs> 70s and 80s. In fact, I think, oh, what was, uh, I think one of his songs was used in Juno. I think it was oh, like the main right. song in the movie right, right, Juno. Right, 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 yeah. Yeah, and that was sort of, that became his modern claim to fame. He sort of went through a resurgence, but I, I remember seeing him. He came and performed at my elementary school, Canterbury wow. Woods Elementary School in Annandale, Virginia, uh, when I was in third grade or something like that. So he really made kind of a journey there. But So I had those records, and I would play them, and then I would record, uh, I would play the albums on the turntable, <laughs> and then I would record little radio shows on the boombox. And so that was my first little radio studio. And then you fast forward to eighth grade when I... <laughs> Uh, and I'm doing this all the way through eighth grade, right? Um, this was why. Why is Bobby locked in his room talking to himself again? You know, that was doing my. Why is he? I do the yeah. Jim I know. Gaffigan I was just gonna voice. say Gaffigan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would do pretend radio shows. I even had a fake radio station that I was part of, and it was the it was the rival radio station to WKRP. It was WPIG Hog Radio. That was my. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I also want to get to when you also liked MASH. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that was my thing. I mean, I guess I imagine a lot of kids are like this. I know you were like mm -hmm. this. Yes, where, I was. You know, we're, uh, we're influenced by pop culture. We're influenced by the shows and, and music that we listen to. And, and, uh, and so I would always be into whatever it was I was watching at the time. And I, I went through a period of time several years, and I still love the show, but mm -hmm. I, I went through a period of time when I was a kid, maybe sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, I was really into MASH. Yeah. And there was, <laughs> in seventh grade, I wanted to be Hawkeye Pierce. And so I would just, I would not clean my room. And <laughs> I even insisted that my mom buy me a, a couple of martini glasses. So I could <laughs> pretend, I love pretend, that. sit around my room pretending to drink mar <laughs> martinis. Just like MASH. I mean, because I wanted to be, I wanted my so room funny. to be the swamp, right? And well, while you were pretending to be Hawkeye, I was running in slow motion as the Bionic Woman, <laughs> yeah, making those noises, or <laughs> 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 whatever I would do. And that's what so appealed to me. I mean, I could tell story after story about, like, you know, there was a period of time when I wanted to be Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. you know, it goes on and on. <laughs> whatever happened to be, I, I said Dr. Johnny Fever there for yeah. a while. Yeah. So then so you, I think, you know what, that kind of influenced the fact that I've done all kinds of things in my career. Right, I haven't right. just done one track. I've been on all kinds of tracks. So you were a disc jockey, right? You worked at B104. That was a, yeah, like a literal kind of disc a jockey. Line. Yeah, that that's, was my main. That's been my main career since college is being on the radio uh, or doing podcasting, which is very, very similar. Well, well when did you when did you do your internship? Um, okay, so uh, I had done my first college radio show. I started that in 1992, in the fall semester of 1992. And by the end of that semester, I was like, you know, I had the bug. I mean, you know what it's like mm -hmm. to first be on the air and, and st to start doing it. It's almost addictive mm -hmm. to do what we do here. And so when I was actually doing it where there was an audience, it was the first time I had ever been doing a show in which people actually listened to it because my little pretend radio shows in my bedroom uh, when I was a kid, no one would hear that except me. And so uh, when I got to college and there was a college station and I could do a show voluntarily and I wouldn't have to audition for it, I wouldn't <laughs> have to apply for it, I could just do it. Uh, I really fell in love with it. And then at the end of that semester, at the end of the 1992 fall semester, 
I applied for an internship with the show that I had grown up listening to. And when I talk about influences, I would say this this show was my main influence in everything that I do in broadcasting and podcasting since then. And that was, I applied to intern on the Don and Mike show in Washington, D.C., where I grew up. And I grew up listening to first Don Geronimo when he was on in the afternoon on WAVA in Washington, D.C. And then I listened to when he went to the morning show and did uh, the morning zoo show on WAVA with Mike O'Mara, and they teamed up, and I was just addicted to that show. Anytime I could listen, I, I would listen, especially on Christmas breaks and summer breaks and so on when wow. I could actually listen to the radio in the morning. And so uh, when it came time to uh, launch my radio career, I said, you know what, I'm going to apply for an internship with Don and Mike. By that point, they had gone on to be the afternoon show, very successful afternoon show on WJFK in Washington, D.C., and their studio was based in Fairfax, Virginia, which was, you know, 10 minutes from my parents' house. Mm -hmm. uh, so I applied for that job. The executive producer of the show, Diana Silman, uh, called me in for an interview. I went in for an interview. And I guess it went well because she called me back. He was the day after or two days after that and said, you've got the job. You can be an intern. And that was, that was it. That was like the beginning of my radio career. If it hadn't been for Diana on the Don and Mike show offering me that job, uh, I may not even be in radio because it's hyper competitive. To mm -hmm. get your foot in the door anywhere mm -hmm. is almost impossible. And while it was an unpaid internship, it was still significant insofar as Don and Mike were nationally syndicated. They were expanding to uh, Buffalo and Sacramento and all these places while I was on the show. And so I spent the first, um, the first portion of that internship, which would be the spring semester of 1993, interning specifically for Don and Mike. But as I was working for Don and Mike, I began to help out their news guy, who was a guy <laughs> named Buzz Burbank. Oh, my goodness. And, <laughs> yeah. And so that's where I met Buzz Burbank. And because I was a political science major and so on, I was, of course, was very interested in the news. And Buzz Burbank was Don and Mike's news guy and almost like the third sidekick, right? Right. And so when that first, when that 1993 spring semester ended, I asked if I could stay on and do a second internship, but with Buzz Burbank specifically. Hmm. So for the summer of 1993, from, I don't know, May on through August... I was Buzz's intern. So what I would do is I would get into the studio. I, would, I was super ambitious at the time. I was a young kid. I was in my early 20s. And so I, I really wanted to make a go of it in radio. So I would get into the radio station at like 8 o'clock in the morning, even though it was an afternoon show. And I would sit in, um, in Buzz's newsroom, which had a giant window, giant plate glass window that looked into the main broadcast studio. And I would sit there and I would pull off AP wire stories and I would get those all arranged. And then um, Buzz liked to, and still does, likes to type out all of his news copy on half sheets of paper. So he would take like, a, you know, an eight and, a half, eight and a half by 11 piece of typing paper. And I would take a whole stack of that and cut them in half. And then so Buzz would have plenty of paper to type up his news. And then he would take the AP stories that I would pull off of the wire service, which, by the way, was still just a printer that sat in the corner. And then whenever there was a new breaking news story or the AP wanted to send something down to all the various newsrooms, it would just appear and it would hmm. just suddenly start printing off of the satellite. And so uh, I would take all those items and get those ready. And then when Buzz would come in, he would write them up in his own words and, you know, uh, 
put together his entire newscast. And I would also pull audio clips and so on that he could use, what are known as actualities. And uh, so he would have uh, news audio to break up the actual, his actual voice reading the news. And so that was my uh, gig for half a, you know, half a year or so. Okay, so basically so, you, um, you because I'm confused, your school was in Pennsylvania and you yes. were interning in D.C. So that you yes. were just living in D.C. and o the only thing you were doing was working for the radio station. That's right. I lived at home with my parents. Right. And so my parents, were, thank God, were generous enough to let me live at home during the internship. So I actually lived at, went back. And you can imagine, you know me, I loved being in college. I loved being away yeah. from home. I loved living by my own rules and so on. Um, but so it was a real challenge from that perspective to go back home mm -hmm. and live at home for the better part of a year again. But I was at work mostly. So I didn't really spend a lot of time at mm -hmm. home. And, um, but my parents, you know, gave me some money that I could, you know, because it was still part of my college, mm -hmm. you know, technically. Yes. And so my parents still supported me at that point in time. And I'm very, very grateful for that. They paid for my college as well. And right. there's a whole backstory to that, too. But um, so, I, you know, uh, my parents were very, very um, uh, generous when it came to not only saving up but making sure that I had the money to uh, go through college without having to worry about cash. And that was that's a rare thing, especially yeah. now. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so I, I spent all that time on the Don and Mike show and that got me launched on a career. And then when I got back to college, I started doing a daily morning show on the campus radio station. So I would get up and, uh, be in, uh, in the campus radio station at six o'clock in the morning and then I would start the show at seven and then we would do a, a show from seven to nine and the show, <laughs> Very much like my podcast is right now. <laughs> Less politics than the show that I do now, mm -hmm. but the same dynamic. In fact, most of the shows I've done since then have the same sort of two-person, host-co-host kind of uh, dynamic with always that comedic edge and sound effects and, mm -hmm. you know, bed music and all kinds of audio elements. I always right. love doing that, mainly because that's what Don Geronimo of the Don and Mike show would always do. And that's, that's where I kind of learned. Well, and for those who don't know, uh, Bud, Buzz Burbank is on your Tuesday show. So he's always yes. there. On, I mean, so talk about full circle. Right, Buzz exactly. is one of the greats. I mean, Buzz is not only a, a wonderful, uh, smart, funny, generous friend, um, but he's one of the best broadcasters I've ever encountered. I've encountered a lot of broadcasters yeah. and there's some who are cynical and dark and dirty and, They've been from radio station to radio station only to end up working in the afternoons in Winchester, Virginia or something like that. <laughs> the real Dr. Johnny Fever types. Yeah. Uh, but Buzz is one of those guys who I think everyone he works with recognizes his quality, mm -hmm. not only as a broadcast professional, but someone who you can work with yeah. and communicate with and not have to worry about uh, right. pulling his own weight. And so that's... a. Uh, and this is one teeny tiny one half of one percent of uh, describing Buzz Burbank. He is, a, and a you know, I mean, guy. I we met him a couple of years ago. We we went yeah. to Florida for your father's 80th birthday, and so I got to meet him. And yeah, he's just a lovely man. He yeah. and his wife, they're just so they're so cool. They're just super mm -hmm. cool. They're incredibly generous too. Just really good, loving people. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I wanted just to say the fact that it's like n not too. Is that too many correlations? I mean, in our life, you know, I mean, you grew up completely differently than I did. But what's funny yeah. is, number one, 
my mother used to sell advertising for WKTK, which was very much like WKRP. In fact, uh, <laughs> there was a guy on there. His I don't remember his real Steve Cochran was the name, his radio name, and he was very much like Johnny Fever, although cuter. He was he was really cute, but uh, you know, my mother loved that rock and roll uh, radio station vibe. And she had so much fun working at that job. And I remember we were in Maryland, obviously, when she, when she was doing that job. And I was, I would, you know, visit the station. And I was only eight years old, so there's only so much I can remember. But it was really fun, and it was like WKTK. And then the other weird thing, the other weird correlation is that briefly, because my father used to work for ABC News as a cameraman, he got me a job working at ABC in Los Angeles, and I worked at mm-hmm. the desk. And I would... Uh, because I don't know what the rules were, but the guy, the desk person was unable, because of the rules, to pull things off the AP, so I would, or off oh. the wire. And so I was the one who would get that off the wire, and I would organize it and then hand it over to the desk guy, which, uh, oh, you know, cool. was kind of funny, you know. Yeah. Not I too did, many parallels in our thing. life other than, you know, pretending to be Spider-Man or the Bionic Woman or something like that. But, um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually, I, I ended up sabotaging my own radio career uh, because I desperately needed, out of college, I my first radio job out of college was at uh, a station at w, in Reading, Pennsylvania called WEEU. And Reading was very close to where I went to college. So uh, it wasn't that significant of a move. Um, but in terms of my career, it was great. I couldn't believe that I actually got hired somewhere, uh, despite the fact that it was part-time. Mm-hmm. And uh, because it was part-time and I spent two years there, I, what ended up happening was I was being dumped off of my parents' health care because I had reached mm-hmm. that age where mm-hmm. I could no longer be on their health care plan. So I needed to get full-time work, and then I ended up taking a job in Allentown, Pennsylvania at B104, and that was a real kind of hot rock and FM music DJ <laughs> kind of yeah. job. It was completely unlike my show at WEU, which, once again, was very similar to my podcast. Um, but when I went to B104, it was uh, soul-crushing because they made me take a fake radio name, they, <laughs> which was... Which was? <laughs> technically, it was Stretch Cunningham <laughs> because, of course, you can tell that I'm tall when I'm on the exactly. radio. <laughs> you, you sound so tall. Yeah, I know. That was the most insane thing. Well, you're tall, Bob. Why don't you use the name Stretch Cunningham? And I had no choice in that matter whatsoever. So I, you know, I kind of stuck it to the man and said, all right, you know what? I'm not going to call myself Stretch. I'm going to be Bob Cunningham. Fine. You know, the reason they made me do that is they said because the name Seska was too ethnic. Wow. (laughs) For the Allentown Marketplace. And so that was the justification. Fine. Whatever. That's pretty So I lasted there. I lasted there less than a year yeah. before, because um, when I was working in Reading at WEEU, I also started my first paid newspaper column. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the editors I worked with had moved on to this thing called the internet. <laughs> and then so in early 1997, she called me up and said, Bob, I'm working on this thing called the internet. <laughs> Would you like to also come and work on the internet? And I said, yes, please, <laughs> please, please hire me because I'm Stretch Cunningham here and I hate my life. So, uh, yeah, so I left radio. I abandoned radio. 
And it only took me a couple of years, though, before I was back in radio right. because I worked at that job on the Internet. And then I took a job uh, on a morning show in Reading, Pennsylvania once again. I couldn't stay away. So, again, radio has always been this common thread. You know, I've, I've gone back to it. It's like a good form of cancer in a way. I keep <laughs> relapsing and remitting. Well, and then well, the last, last thing I'm going to ask you about that is okay. I just want you to share the story about the fine print. Do you know what I'm talking um, about? About when you would read the front, when you would read the fine or you know what I'm talking about, like the the uh, things that you had to say real quick. Oh, yeah. Yeah. OK. So when I was at B104, one of my jobs was uh, I did the third shift. And by the way, this was a full time job. So I had finally I had health care. I was earning a, you know, for a guy who was in his mid 20s, a relatively decent salary in radio. Ten thousand dollars more, by the way, than what was forecasted at the career center at my high school. And that was a lot of fun when I told my dad, yeah, I went to the career center. He said, well, what, what career did you put in? I said, uh, radio broadcaster. And he said, well, how much does that make a year? And I said, $15,000 a year. You know, this is when I was in ninth or 10th grade. And he said, Bob, you can't live on $15,000 a year. So my first, but my first full-time radio job, I made $10,000 a year more than that right. uh, for less than a year. Uh, but I don't know where I was going with that. Oh, the, the fine print. So right. part of that job was I would do the overnight shift and then I would help out on the morning show as sort of a wacky, I did like the wacky sidekick kind of thing. And I also was in charge of producing uh, commercials. And so when I would get in to work every night, can imagine that getting i got to work at 9 30 p.m <laughs> and in my cubicle in my little uh, inbox was a stack of commercials that i have to record and invariably there were always car commercials and at the end of car commercials on the radio we all we've all heard these commercials yeah. where at the end there's this big disclaimer about <laughs> taxes and delivery and what's legal and what's not yeah. legal and so one night and this was well into that job i wasn't going to risk it right away right but one night, I was just so burned out with it. I didn't want to do another car commercial. So I got to the disclaimer at the end, which is supposed to be read really, really fast and really <laughs> quietly. Yeah. Because you're just supposed to legally get it in there. It mm -hmm. doesn't matter if it's entirely audible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> as long as it's in there. And so I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to see if I can just say gibberish words <laughs> and see if I can get away with this. Because none of these things you can actually make out what the announcer is saying. Yeah. So I went in there and I said, yeah, Menderbach Ford, da-da-da, sale item this week, and, and, you know, Ford cars on sale. And then I get to the uh, disclaimer at the end, and I just went, I throw in like a, I throw in an actual word randomly, like the tech dealership costs and Menderbach Ford, and then come back and read the tag. And, uh, and so the next day... <laughs> I got, with complete reason. I mean, there was no way I wasn't going to get caught. So my program director called me in his office and said, Bob, I just heard your Manderbock Ford spot. Did you just say gibberish at the end of it? And, he, and I said, uh, yeah. Because I knew, because, you know, program directors, their whole thing is to record your show or yeah. listen to your show and listen back to all this shit and find out if anyone's fucking around on the air. And that was that was me. Well, see, and, that's, and unfortunately that's... for me, it had gone on the air a bunch of times already. <laughs> so I think some of the other DJs were like, what the hell is yeah. this commercial? At the end, he's just going. <laughs> <laughs> see, and that's one of the things that I like about you is that you would do something like that. 
That's like oh, that. I was I was I was so much trouble. I used yeah. to get in trouble all the time. I really got in trouble at WEU in Reading, Pennsylvania. And that was because I could just right out of the shoot. I mean, my first paid radio job, I did the Bob Seska show. It yeah. was the same title of the show that I do now. And uh, I just, uh, I had a big head, <laughs> and I thought I could do anything I want, and I should be able to do anything I want. Why? Because I'm a young DJ. <laughs> and so uh, I did. I tried everything and got away with some of it and didn't get away with much of it. One of the things I didn't get away with was um, uh, one Christmas time, I had to do the overnight shift Christmas Eve into Christmas morning. And I said, you know what? Fuck this. I, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna do a one-man performance of It's a Wonderful Life <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning. And who's gonna be listening at three o'clock in the morning? Nobody. <laughs> so I did it and I got in huge trouble. <laughs> My program director called me into her office and she was like, Bob, we woke up at 3.45 with my kids on Christmas morning and turned on the radio to have Christmas music playing in the background <laughs> while we opened presents. And it was you doing voices. What was that? <laughs> I almost got fired for wow. that, by the way. That's so, well, but at so. least it was a Christmas theme, right? At least yeah, you were yeah. doing that movie, and it was a Christmas theme. So. <laughs> <laughs> it, was so it was the most insane thing I think I've ever That's done hilarious. on the air. It was just, and it, it, it's not even um, something that I can brag about. It's just an embarrassing event. No, like, it's funny. It's a funny story. And well, here's it, something that I can brag about. I used to do this radio bit where it was uh it, i it was something that don and mike did and then i i bar i quote unquote borrowed it <laughs> it was uh the pay it, well no it wasn't payphone olympics it was oh it was honk for cash oh okay. it was the name of the game and what i had people doing this was in 1995 1996 so the first cell phones had already come out and so what i do is announce on the air that people what you should do if you want to win a prize is uh we, t call the radio station on your cell phone when you pull up to a red light, stop at the red light, of course, but when the light turns green, don't go anywhere. <laughs> Hold your cell phone out the window, and you get a point for every time someone oh honks their horn behind you. That's so and funny. And the person with the most honks wins the contest, right? <laughs> and I did that. I did that on a number of... Wow. I, I couldn't believe that people actually understood the rules yeah. because... I just read the rules here. I just stated the rules on the show here, and it was confusing to me just now. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine. But people actually would participate in that, and I was very proud of the fact that I used to pull that used off. To, used to fuck with w the traffic. you in Reading, Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now let's switch gears to something, because you've had 350 careers, so we've got to get to them. Uh, yeah. How did you come to design album covers for Yes. Oh, my God. Well, that, in order to describe that, I have to talk about cartoons. Oh, so animation weird, was first. Was a, yeah, okay. animation was first. It's a weird segue. So just so, go, okay, so you were an animator, so why don't you just tell us about that and then go into the yes okay. thing. Well, so I hadn't intended to ever be an animator. It's the weirdest thing. I ended up doing animated cartoons almost by accident. And what happened was, is I, as I said, uh, my, friend, uh, my friend Don Drago... Uh, 
who hired me to work on the internet when I had been working at B104 as Stretch Cunningham. <laughs> this is 1997 or so. And, and I was hired to work at this, uh, basically it was one of the first uh, internet magazines. It was like a daily oh. local magazine for Reading, Pennsylvania, and Berks County. That was the whole idea of it. And so it was like working on your first blog. It was kind of like right. an early, early blog in a way. And, uh, and so part of my job was to create uh, banner ads for our local advertisers mm -hmm. on the website. And I found this software called, um, at the time it was called Future Splash. And it was intended to be an animation software that you could use to make animated ads on the internet. Mm -hmm. And so I started screwing around with that. And uh, to back up even further, I, I had originally gone to college for graphic design. So I was kind of an artist coming out of, I, I had four years of AP art in high school and I was gonna be a graphic designer. That was my fallback job. Never worked out, I got burned out with art. I didn't study art in college as it turns out. But I had always drawn, I'd always you know, done things like that. And so I started drawing cartoons. I started using this software, Future Splash, to create animated cartoons that I could put on this website that I worked for. And so that's how it kind of got started. They were shitty, awful, poorly drawn cartoons, but it was the time of South Park just starting up, and, and so it was kind of hip to do poorly drawn cartoons. I was drawing, by the way, all the characters using my mouse. I, there wasn't any wow. you know, Cintiq tablet or anything like that. It was just like my hand and the mouse. It's almost impossible to do it now that I, now that I think back on it. So um, when I was working at this, uh, this news magazine, or this uh, online magazine, it was called Berks Alive for Berks County. And uh, I created a cartoon for it based on characters that I had drawn when I was a kid. And um, long story short, I had, and I had left that job to go work at a post-production facility in Philadelphia. Right after I left that job, though, suddenly one of my cartoons turns up in Entertainment Weekly. Hmm. Entertainment Weekly had started doing an internet review section of the magazine. It was toward the back of the magazine. And uh, they had seen one of my cartoons, one of my poorly drawn cartoons, and had given it an <laughs> A-. minus. I couldn't believe it. It was like, oh, my God, because I was a subscriber to Entertainment Weekly. I got the magazine in the mail just randomly one day, and I'm flipping through it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, X-Files, blah, 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 all those 90s entertainment things. And I get to the back, and I see, well, that looks familiar. That looks like, oh, my God, that's my cartoon. And, oh, my God, I got an A-. minus. So it was like, wow a big deal and yeah. i decided you know what i could start my own animation company now and do these for paying clients and so that's what i started doing that's how i started uh, my first animation studio is called camp chaos and it was it was really basically because i had received that publicity that unsolicited publicity right. in entertainment weekly so i had that automatic selling point and so that's when I started working from home. I started uh, my own animation studio working from home in 1999, the very beginning of 1999. And, uh, and in the spring of 2000, so a little more than a year later, I did a cartoon called Napster Bad, <laughs> which, was, which made fun of Metallica's lawsuit <laughs> against that uh, music sharing software called Napster, mm -hmm. which I loved. I used Napster yeah. all the time at the time. But um, that was really the thing that's launched my real animation career because from there I got to do music videos I got to do I, I pitched a TV sh uh, series to VH1 and that ended up becoming a, a two season uh, series on VH1 just it was sort of an animated sketch comedy show and that's where I first knew Jen Kirkman and Hal mm. Sparks they both did voices on that 
but as I was doing that, I, <laughs> this is so weird. I mean, now that I'm recounting my career, it's like just all over the place. <laughs> One of the people who helped me uh, get a foot in the door at VH1 was this music manager named Jordan Burliant. And when I had done um, the Napster Bad cartoon, he had contacted me to do a cartoon similar to it, but with the guys from Motley Crue. Hmm. And so that's when I got to meet Nikki Six and everything like that. So I, I, he had me write a script for them, like a Napster Bad-style script. And so Motley Crue took my script and went into the recording studio, all four members, and recorded their own voices for this <laughs> cartoon. So wow. here I'm in, like, the summer of 2000, uh, working with Motley Crue and shit like that. That's crazy. Yeah, it was just a crazy summer when that Napster Bad cartoon broke. I think there were 10 million downloads a day. I was shutting wow. down entire And that is a fun, ISPs. that's funny. It's a funny, yeah. you know what? In fact, I find, I talk to myself a lot. And when I do, <laughs> I, I, I'll say fucker or I'll say, it's, it's like, okay, so what's the guy, what's the lead guy's name of Metallica? I always forget his name. Well, the drummer's name is Lars Ulrich. Okay, so I, Lars. I call, in the cartoon, I call him Lars Ulrich, which okay. he hated. <laughs> Well, it's it's the, when he cusses and he says fuck, it's like I can hear a little bit of that when I'm doing it. So I just think it's from your video. Like, you so, know, you yeah. fucker. Yeah, he, he was like really hyper kinetic. Like, yeah, you know, it was really yeah. fast. Blah, blah. I mean, that. but my favorite was the other guy. Was James Hetfield. Yeah, the guy who said, just, beer, yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> right, and then, then I, I basically played James Hetfield like Phil Hartman's Frankenstein Right. Character. That was exactly, it was just, it was kind of a tribute to Phil Hartman, uh, which is a, a nice way of saying I stole the character from Phil <laughs> uh, stole the voice at least. And, but, I, but it worked, because he kind of looks like that. He yeah. kind of looked lurchy and yeah. everything. So, yeah, that's why that played out the way it did. But this guy, Jordan Burliant, who introduced me to Motley Crue, also, <laughs> the day that Jordan and I walked into VH1, I met Jordan at his hotel, and as he was getting ready for the two of us to get in a cab to go to VH1, I noticed on his computer screen that he had uh, one of the Yes album covers as the desktop wallpaper. Hmm. I said, oh, you're into Yes, and he said, yeah, I manage Yes. Wow. I said, what? <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> Because yes, of course, is one of my favorite favorite bands. It's one of my one or like number one or two, depending on the day. My mm -hmm. favorite band, and so I was blown away. So I had, a, of course, I had a gazillion questions for him, and it turns out that they were working on their next album, which was called Magnification. And so he asked me if I'd like to design the album cover for it, and at the same time work on some music video stuff <laughs> for them. And I was just, I was blown away. Of course, wow. I said yes, even though I hadn't done any design work in years. But uh, so that's how that kind of happened. So I, through Jordan, uh, again, his name is Jordan Burliant. He uh, brought me a lot of work as far as uh, design work and music video work. Hmm. I ended up doing videos for Everclear. And um, he, wasn't a, he wasn't linked to Iron Maiden, but I also did a bunch of videos for Iron Maiden. Hmm. And uh, Meatloaf, I did, crazy. I think, two Music videos for Meatloaf? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's nothing more wild than um, seeing a, a Meatloaf music, like, concert video of mm -hmm. him in concert and then seeing my animation on the screen yeah. behind him in front of the crowd. It was, That's like, so the closest amazing. I'll ever get to being being on stage in front of a giant audience. <laughs> I mean, that, that it's it's amazing that you got the opportunity to do that. It's... It, I mean, I'm not it's artistic. Just, the entertainment industry is all about timing. It is, <laughs> but I mean, it's specifically, it's, it's your favorite band. Like, I mean, I've, I had one opportunity 
that I had a friend who was a dancer and mm-hmm. his roommate was choreographed the Rolling Stones, you know, tour. So yeah. I got to go. I never got to meet Mick Jagger, though, but I did get to go to the concert. And that's about it. So, you know, yeah. I mean, you well, I mean, met someone who was managing your very favorite band in the world. And then you got to do artwork for their album. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just I have a problem with saying no, clearly. <laughs> People ask me to do things, and that's how I end up in these tangents. Like, I may have still been in radio. Right. Had uh, Don Drago not called me up and said, Bob, do you want to work on the internet? Um, you know, and I said, yes, because I can't say no. Um, <laughs> and and so that's, that's kind of how all of this has worked out, one thing after another. It was like with the Huffington Post. I got contacted one day by Roy Seacoff, who was uh, the founding editor at the Huffington Post. And this was in 2005, early 2005, when they were getting ready to launch it. And he said, uh, we're launching this website with Ariana Huffington. Do you, would you want to do some cartoons for it, political cartoons? And I said, yes, because I can't <laughs> say no. And, uh, but, you know, the funny thing is, he said, well, while you're waiting to get this kicked off, while, while we're working on the details here internally, why don't you, here's a login. Why don't you just blog for us? And I said, wow. yes, because <laughs> I can't say no. Plus, you so have lots of started, political opinions. Yeah, in August of 2005, I started blogging for the Huffington Post, mainly because I was initially contacted to do cartoons for them, which I never, ever did. Wow. I never ended up doing any cartoons. You know what I'll bet? I'll I'll bet my mother sent me some of your articles because my mother would send everybody political shit. I know to the point where some people were like, oh, my God, you can't please stop. Like she just. I, I used to listen to the Stephanie Miller show when mm-hmm. I was driving home from work every day mm-hmm. in like 2006, 2007. And one of the biggest deals in my career at that point in time right. was I was driving home and then suddenly Stephanie Miller starts reading one of my articles That's from the crazy. Huffington Post on the air. And I was just, I nearly drove off the road. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, because Stephanie Miller, um, you know, I talk a lot about the Don and Mike show. Stephanie Miller is very much of that same, yes. like carved from that same cloth, that same morning radio cloth mm-hmm. that I love so much that is is really my wheelhouse, too, mm-hmm. because of my influences. Whether it's Dr. Johnny Fever or Don Geronimo or the Don and Mike show or whatever, that's all all the same. So I was just blown away by the fact that Stephanie read my shit And now you're air. a regular on her show, and, and now, everybody yeah. knows we have sex in the refrigerator because of her. <laughs> At yes, you, indeed. but you know, you had yeah, to go spill is, the beans on her show, <laughs> right? That and that that was entirely my fault. Well, it was partly <laughs> partly Jody's fault too. So okay. that was <laughs> well. Then I know to blame her. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, you know what's interesting is that the closest I've ever came was that you know, and I've also told the story before on my show. But just to recap, when I was nine years old, my mom moved us out to California. So she dropped me off at her mother's house. As she drove to California, and I stayed with my grandma for the summer, my mom Mm. went to California to set us up. And so during that stay, I was bored, you know, one summer afternoon. I turned on the television, flipping through the channels, and there's a scene that I get drawn into because it's two teenagers deciding to have first-time sex, which is funny because the first book I ever did was The Virgin Diaries about first-time sex, but that show was Days of Our Lives. And so I started to watch. I became hooked as one, you know, gets hooked on soap operas. And I, just like you talking about uh, Christmas vacations and all that, I would watch it on Christmas vacation. I'd watch it during summer vacation. I pulled, you know, my mother had watched it when she, you know, when she was pregnant with me. I think after my father and her split up, 
I, you know, she wasn't watching it anymore because she was working, but I would stay with my, my paternal grandmother and she was a fan. So mm-hmm. we would watch it together. And then I would, I, you know, I know I grabbed some of my friends from high school, got them into it. My boyfriend was into it at the, in, during high school. And then after that, I went to work selling perfume at the Broadway in Glendale, California, where I would see a bunch of people who worked on the show. It was, you know, Burbank Studios was, wasn't far. At that time, my mother was pursuing an acting career. I was not yet. And she was on the show as an extra. And mm. then eventually, I... My mom and I went to the same acting studio and found out when we when we graduated and then we went to the professional level where we would call in casting directors to meet them that my coach knew the casting director for Days of Our Lives. So we got to meet them. My mom and I pestered him to bring in. It was Fran Bascom and then her assistant, Ron Sperber. Just two of the nicest people in the world. And what mm-hmm. was what was so cool was that because my mother was the one who we would like collect all the pictures of everybody in the studio with their resumes, bring them in to the casting director before they would come into our studio so they could pick out scenes we could work on and, and do for them. So my mother had the job of doing that, collecting the pictures of everybody, the 8x10s, and then delivering them to the casting director. So I was like, I'm coming with you. So I got Mm. to meet them and we kind of got in with them, you know. And so as we got in, my mother was the first person to be hired in the group. And then I was hired and both of us were the, she got the most work. I got, I'd say I was second. I I, I didn't work quite as much as her. She worked enough to get her insurance through Screen Actors Guild, which was awesome. Oh, great. I didn't quite get that far, but we both got to do it. So that was one opportunity where I, you know, was involved with something I had been a fan of and then I became a part of, which was absolutely fucking awesome. But, yeah. um, okay, before I ask you about, I, I, I do want to preface it when I, I, wanna, I don't want to forget how I prefaced the next question for you, okay. but the other, but the question that I'll ask from uh, people on the internet that I, I ask people, you know, hey, send us your questions. Freakbase wants to know, who is the best on-screen Batman? Yeah, well, you know what? Freak Base is trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> I know, because he winked. He put up a little wink. Yes, that's right. Because I think Freak knows the answer to this question. <laughs> and he knows that when I say it, everyone's going to go, fuck you, Suska. <laughs> because I think Ben Affleck was the best Batman. Fuck and you, Suska. Yeah, see, there you go. That's You know what? That might be the correct response. It's just my taste is my taste. Yeah. Sorry. I yeah. mean, as far as, yeah. I mean, I could go on and on and I on. I can't say I've ben ever Affleck seen Ben Affleck is I... my favorite Batman. And in terms of, I'll say Ben Affleck is my favorite Batman. He may not empirically be the best Batman right. because I think Michael Keaton was that's really who, damn that's great. That's who I'm going to go with. Yeah. And you know who else was really good and we never quite uh, put him into the same category is uh, Adam West. <laughs> Oh, you right, I mean? yeah, yeah. That was the Batman that I first right. grew up with. That was the Batman I knew. Yeah, the first we all thing knew I him. Ever, the first thing I ever wrote is a Batman comic book when I was like <laughs> three years old. I drew the pictures Aww. and then told my mom what words <laughs> to put in. So I think cute. my mom still has it. You know, I should... I should get her to get yeah. it, you know, break it out and take some pictures of yeah. it so I can have it. That would <laughs> because be cool. Because it was, it was literally the first thing I ever wrote. With it your was, cute little face, your little boy yeah. face. <laughs> <laughs> right and there were batman and then there was a love story in it and everything but robin <laughs> fell in love with there was a character on the show called Marsha, and he fell in love with Marsha in the wow. story and that's so and cute and fought the joker and yeah <laughs> okay so this is going to be the last thing i ask you but i have to tell you how i prefaced it i just wrote nerd <laughs> okay but but i'm gonna say that because i learned that from you i didn't start out calling you a nerd i heard you sell i heard you 
calling yourself a nerd. Uh, I mean, of course, I've heard that term before, but it, to me, the nerd is a positive thing. Like, I yeah. think I'm a geek in many ways. So, like, we're a nerd and a geek. But <laughs> nerd because you have all your posters and statues. Okay, so I, I have to be careful here because I don't want to call them what they're not called. Like, for instance, they're not called action figures. Um, well, I know action figures are toys. Toys, right. Collect, yeah. So you don't have toys so much, but you have, like, statues and you have movie yeah. posters so the the thing is, I mean, I want you to talk about those, and I'll just let you go for it. But uh, I would like to kind of just specify what is it about having those things? What what do you feel? What do you get from it? Mm. Well, that's um, a complicated question. I mean, more more complicated than you would suspect. But I mean, how it makes me feel? I mean, look, it's uh, there's. Uh, a nostalgia mm -hmm. aspect to it, of mm -hmm. course. There's, um, you know, uh, uh, dream fulfillment or wish fulfillment mm -hmm. based on childhood. That's yeah. that's part of it because we grew up. Generation X grew up in the uh, in the late seventies and the eighties, and we were deeply ensconced in the merchandising mm -hmm. of films. That's yeah. when it really began in earnest. Is in that period of time, beginning with the Mego toys. The uh, they were eight inch <laughs> action figures that came out. They were originally the superheroes, everything from uh, the Marvel characters to the DC characters. And then Star Wars came out, and there were the Star Wars action figures. Of course, when it came to Mego and Star Wars, I had all that crap. I mean, mm -hmm. not every single item to mm -hmm. the point where I was a you know a seven year old completist, constantly <laughs> badgering my parents so I could have the full collection. I wanted all that stuff. Of course, my parents were like, "Ah, <laughs> why do you need to spend so much money on these worthless pieces of plastic?" <laughs> but but needless to say. Um, uh, just fast forwarding real quick to to answer your question specifically, I like to, especially given the fact that we're in this career where we follow tragedy and yeah. villainy and right, awfulness yeah. 24-7, where you never clock out. We're always on. Mm -hmm. it, you know, the jobs that we do, while it's, thank God, and knock on all the wood, I am so grateful for this opportunity to be able to work from mm -hmm. home and to set my own rules, but at the same time, there is a downside to that. And so far as we're always up to our eyeballs in the ugliness mm -hmm. of the world, yeah. the tragedy of the world. And while there's always good news, too, there's lots of bad news, especially mm -hmm. over the past four years. So I like to surround myself with things that make me happy, yeah. whether it's uh, images, whether it's paintings, whether it's art. And I consider, to a certain extent, I consider all this crap in my room to be some version of art. It's pop art, right. to be sure. But um, I, I like what these characters represent. I like what the franchises that they're from represent, whether it's Star Wars or DC Comics or Marvel Comics or Lord of the Rings, all of this stuff, all the nerd things, right? Um, but for me, there's a psychological benefit that goes beyond just my drive to collect mm -hmm. things, which I've always had. I've always wanted to gather the things that I like, that I find appealing, and gather them around me. Um, but there's there's another aspect to it where um, it just it makes me happy to look at them. Yeah. Like I will occasionally, like if I'm brushing my teeth or something, I'll wander into my office and just kind of look at my shit while mm -hmm. I'm brushing my teeth and say, well, this is kind of cool that I was able to accumulate this. Aren't I you know, blessed to be able to have mm -hmm. uh, the wherewithal to be able to collect some of these things? 
And so that's that's kind of the answer to your initial question. But I mean, where this comes from is uh, is like I said, that childhood of being involved in the hype machines around yeah. whether. And it really hit the the ground running with the Star Wars characters. Yes. I mean, I was really into the Mego action figures, which you see I have replicas of them. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many I've got. I've got nine or ten of them up in that cabinet. Um, but uh, uh, it was the Star Wars thing that really got me hyped up. And and so I, uh, my parents would buy me the Star Wars action figures. I had not all of them, but a lot of them. And the vehicles and the, the TIE fighter and the X-Wing and all that stuff. And um, around... I want to say 1980 or so, my parents refurbished our bedrooms. My, I slept in my own room, and my brothers shared a bedroom. They had bunk beds in their, their bedroom. And they, you know, my parents painted, like, super graphics on the wall, and we had all this cool new furniture from, uh, you know, I think the equivalent of Ikea back then was a place called Scan. And so we had all this awesome furniture from Scan, um, again, which was like an Ikea-type place, Scandinavian furniture. Right. <clears throat> And then in 19, and so on these, on this furniture, I had all my Star Wars toys and everything set up. Like it was a display. It was yeah. like almost like a museum kind of display with all that shit. And then in 1981, my house burned down. <laughs> so um, it, without getting into the details of which would have been, which was the second fire, right. the second time my house burned down. Um Without getting into the details of why that happened, suffice to say, the next morning I was able to tour my bedroom, what used to be my bedroom, and see all of that crap. Wow. All of those, like, first-generation vintage Star Wars toys just melted into shrinky dinks, just yeah. completely decimated. That's so sad. Yeah, and so I'd always remembered what my room looked like right. uh, before the fire. And I think to a certain extent, if you want to look at the pathology of this, mm-hmm. the pathology of why I collect what I collect and why my you know, studio space slash office space looks the way it does, it's just trying to recapture that, mm-hmm. but then in an adult way. Right. Um, so that's kind of the motivation, the motivating factor. And, and you know, um, not to get too tragic here, but I, I have had kind of a lifetime that's been peppered with incidents of loss Mm -hmm. where i've lost things that have been valuable to me whether it's things i've created or things that i've owned and cherished and somehow uh lost through one circumstance after another and so i'm at this point in my life now as i'm coming up on 50 years old where i feel like i don't want to do that anymore (laughs) i don't want to end up in that uh, cycle of loss i don't want to so I feel like, in a certain to a certain extent, I'm compensating for that that sense of loss. Uh, wow. You know, um, so without getting too overly right. analytical, that's that's kind of what drives it. But it's, again, it's also the main thing. The the main drive is, I love these characters. I love these movies. I love these television shows, and I like having memorabilia from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, around me it just makes me happy it just makes me smile and what's wrong with that and so you know and i don't there are a lot of collectors who just get everything they just want to buy the whole they're as i said before they're completists and they just buy all the crap you know you can see plenty of pictures of those guys on the internet but i'm much more um as you know i am much more discriminating Mm -hmm. in terms of what i buy i i'm very specific in terms of the certain the franchises I support, and the kind of merchandise I buy. So I don't buy the toys, necessarily, mm-hmm. unless they're extraordinary, unless they're high-end and they're really well done. For the most part, I'm buying 
prop replicas and I'm buying statues. Yeah. Typically one sixth scale statues, which are about, you know, the twelve inch, mm-hmm. one one foot tall statues, give or take. And so that's kind of my thing. And <laughs> that's uh it's it's one of the things that I, I love doing. I love the the concept of being able to shop for them online mm-hmm. now. Uh twenty years ago, thirty years ago, it was driving to every store in, yeah. the, in the area and running to the toy section uh, to see if the things were in stock that I wanted and being disappointed and having to walk out. Oh, they didn't have the thing I was looking for. But now you can just do it all online. It's like, you know, it's the, the, the Internet has become the world's biggest toy store. Yeah. And, and so that, that kind of enables me as well. <laughs> and so I do, I do spend, you, you ask what I do in my free time. Well, that's part of what I do in my free time is I just, I scour eBay. I get these ideas in my head. Oh, I'd love to have this particular character at this scale doing mm-hmm. this sort of thing. And I try to find that. I try to fit whatever concept I have for something that I'd love to have in my office. I just suit my search to that, if yeah. that makes any sense. So Yes, it does. Well, and I mean, it's been definitely, it's, it's interesting to watch you collect it because what it has done for me, and I haven't even started, and, and, and maybe I never will do this, I don't know, but when I was, uh, I think, like eight years old, my mother bought me a dollhouse. Yeah. And the dollhouse was very much like, a, it, was a, it was at the time a modern one, which resembles the Brady Bunch house. It wasn't the Brady Bunch house, but it was like that. It was kind of the same colors and architecture and all of that. So yeah, I cool. had fun with, I know, rem- I remember living in Maryland because we didn't really do anything when I got to California for the house. It had already been furnished, but there was some place that we used to go to together where it was all dollhouse furniture. And it was so cool to go into this place because it was like thousands and thousands of pieces. And, wow. you know, of course, I was limited, I think, to the style of the house, which was modern. But it, but I would love, like, my goal is to have, or not my goal, but I mean, I just think maybe it would be fun to have a variety of these kinds of dollhouse, like have a um, just different architecture, you know? Yeah. So, uh, and, and I think that for me, it would just, it wouldn't have the, this, you know, you've got the whole thing of your house burning down and all that. For me, I think it's just a, it's, it's like a, you're a kid again. You get to kind mm-hmm. of live as a kid again. And oh, it's, it's very much that. Yeah. yeah. And then it's just like. It's wish fulfillment. It's like childhood yeah. wish fulfillment. Yeah. And then for me also, I've always enjoyed decorating and. Mm-hmm. Th- you know, I mean, it just falls down to decorating, really. Yeah. yeah. And, and putting you know things That's together. That's a great point. It's the same thing with me. It's yeah. like, this is, I have to put shit in my office, so why don't I choose shit that I like to look at? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and it's fun to put a house together, and it's fun to, you know, for me to just put different combinations of furniture and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I totally understand it, even though the things that you're into are not the things that I would be collecting, but I understand yeah. the draw to it. And I, and I totally understand the childlike, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's fascination, but because both, and thank God you like the Brady bunch because yeah. we enjoy yeah. watching the Brady. I mean, you got me everything having to do with the Brady bunch, like every show that's ever been on, including which we watched not too long ago, the making of, of, of what's Barry Williams book growing up Brady. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which they I did fucking a, love that a book. kind of a docudrama yeah. a made for TV movie, which that, was okay. Uh, put, it was okay. Yeah. It wasn't like the best movie ever. And it was yeah. kind of silly, but overall it, it, just recounted their experiences and it showed some footage which it's always so funny to see the Brady kids in the real world because remember in this in the movie 
they were in the 90s. So the Brady Bunch mm-hmm. lived in their weird world and they went outside and it was all like 90s grunge. Yeah. And yeah. so it's funny to see the kids in the 1970s outside of the Brady Bunch world. And, mm-hmm. you know, you got to see some of those pictures and it was kind of fun because they just look like normal kids as opposed to like Brady Brady kids. Well, yeah. And you know what? Whether it's watching the Brady Bunch or uh, collecting things like this, uh, comic book movie paraphernalia and so on. Again, it's uh, there's a psychological benefit to it. There's yeah. a distraction from the awfulness that goes along Absolutely, with it. And, yeah. and to that extent, there's also, um, at least for me, there's a drive to not engage about it the same way I engage in political discussions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because this is supposed to be all the shit, whether it's Batman or Star Wars, what have you, is supposed to be separate to me mm-hmm. from the political shovel fights. And so when I see the shovel fights taking place about Star Wars, I go, why <laughs> would I waste that cortisol? Why would I, I pump myself with the stress hormones? People get so angry. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So stupid. Get, I mean, people get so militant about mm-hmm. their hatred of it. And I'm talking about fans of Star Wars. Yeah. Self-proclaimed fans. You know what? You say you like those uh, sequel movies with uh, Ray and Finn and Poe and fuck you! <laughs> like, what are we talking Are we talking about abortion? Is this, <laughs> I know, I know. Did suddenly this turn into a, an crazy. abortion conversation? Or well, is this just... about Star Wars? Yeah. Well, and, and and so that's why, that's why I'm resistant to engage in it. Because if I post about Batman, then it becomes, oh, what, the f- fuck you for liking Ben Affleck yeah. as Batman. The only answer to that question is Michael <laughs> Keaton. Fuck you and fuck you. And, and no, 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 no. This does not, these subject matter, whether it's Batman, Superman, Zack Snyder, uh, yeah. Kevin Feige, whoever. Nah, I'm not going to get into a debate about which is better, Marvel or DC. I like both of them. <laughs> And I'm not going to stress myself out over yeah. this thing that is supposed to be fun. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I maybe I'm really hard lying about this. I don't know if I'm off the beaten path with it because, you know, in another respect, I'm also, and this is a whole other separate co- course of conversation, but I'm also a filmmaker. Or at least I have made, oh, I forgot you know, to whether it was a thousand animated shorts I've directed or a, a live action independent film that I made. Mm-hmm. I'm really into talking about movies, of course, yeah. and what's good, what makes for a good movie, what makes for a bad movie. So I can engage to that uh, level. Right. But when it comes to bullshit about, yeah. oh, I can't believe you like uh, Solo, a Star Wars movie. What a, it raped my child. <laughs> like, oh my god really really we're gonna get upset about this well lucky you what kind of privilege is that that you're spending your day 24 right. 7 debating about whether solo a star wars movie sucked or whether it was great <laughs> if you can expend that energy more power to you I'm going to focus on things that actually matter right. in the grand scheme. Well, and of course, I forgot to even... Br- you have, you've had so many different careers and experiences. because I don't say no. That's a sin. <laughs> well, you made a movie. I and should well, tell myself no, <laughs> but we'll, I don't. we'll talk about the movie next time you come on the show. Yeah. Okay. Maybe before next Christmas break. Because <laughs> I think, yeah. I mean, it's been a while. But it's funny because I was thinking... Are we going to have enough to talk about? And now it's going up on an hour and 40 minutes of conversation. So, um, <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> but, I mean, the, the reason I think I was concerned with what are we going to talk about is because, obviously, for the most part, I know 
the answers to these questions. I mean, you actually yeah. have said some things that have surprised me, but overall, I know what this is. So I'm like, well, what are we going to talk about? So I'm <laughs> glad that I could figure out things to talk about that were not necessarily yeah. political. And I'm well, not asking all of the questions that everybody asks. Some of them were political. So I just want to stay away from the politics. Uh, I'm surprised today. that you thought we wouldn't get to this point, this number of minutes on well, the I show. Well, I mean, I guess I figured. We are, we, you know, we are both, both, both blessed talkers. with the gift of Yes, gal. I know. <laughs> But, the th- you know but I, mean? I think it's like as a host, you want to be able to come up with, okay, what can I ask that's interesting to people? And I think I was stumped on that because I'm so close to you. And it, it was a little like, oh, my God, what, you know, if I don't know you, I can go look you up and ask. I don't know. But it just it's, I guess because, I, you know, sometimes like if I've had my mom on the show, I have to figure out. Well, I already know what she thinks, but not mm. everybody else does. And so that's the point. And so well, the. Uh the, the bottom line for me is I have done something in, I think, just about every form of media. Mm-hmm. Everything from a television series to a yeah. movie to podcasting to writing for print, writing for internet, and uh, everything in between. I'm probably missing some. I made a book. I wrote a book. I made <laughs> I a book, too. I made, I a, made book. a book, too. <laughs> I'm, I made a book. I made it. I put the cover on it. And everything. I actually did the cover of my book. Of course you the did. the publisher's cover sucked. So, yeah. <laughs> See, but and you're yeah. also somebody asked if you if you have time to draw, and the answer is no, you don't draw anymore. But I you're also you know, a, you're an artist too. Yeah, it's not it's not that I don't have time to draw. I just have no inclination to do it. I can do it, and I loved drawing when I was doing it. I just again see also uh, you know a thousand animated shorts that I either produced, <laughs> yeah. directed, or animated, produced, directed, or did the voices for, and so on. So. I kind of had my fill in that. I right. will eventually come back to doing some form of art. In fact, I wanted to, for a while now, I wanted to do some uh, some sculpting, uh, you know, maquettes and mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, but I just I just don't have the time. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it's like the, mo- the closest I could get to that is like getting, getting colored pencils in one of those notebooks where I just fill in the lines. That's how artistic <laughs> I am. So, Which actually, so, yeah, so a coloring book is what Yeah, really, that's what okay. it would be. And right. you know what? Adults color now. That's like a thing. And yeah. I can it's see like why a, it would like be fun. It's like a millennial thing, though. It, it uh, is, but you know what? Any self-respecting Gen Xer isn't going to use a coloring book. Except I would. <laughs> I would. But you know, that's going to be the one thing that's going to get me in trouble today. <laughs> that's a- well, I have to say that there's this, there is this... Oh God! What is it? Where you you make these like you put? Uh, I'm not. I can't speak properly right now. Basically, there's a background, right, where you color in red, green, purple, blue, blah blah blah, and then you put black crayon over everything, and then you take a little pen or a pencil and you write on it, and the and the writing is like the rainbow color. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking like about. Like I, yeah. I, you know, I did. I used to do that as an adult, and I, I did that, and then I also I still have it to this day. I just colored. I had because I'm I'm a terrible artist. I suck ass. I'm so bad at it. And so I just basically did this thing where I colored in a, just like a blob of red, and then a, and mm. and it was just it, you know not a square. It was just different shapes, and I'd fill them in, and I did the whole page, and then I took glitter glue, and I outlined all of them, and then I framed mm. it and hung I hung it in my kitchen, and <laughs> it's very colorful. It's it's I mean it's just it looks like a ten year old would do it you know and i just and i think i lied to people and said yeah my niece did that (laughs) because i didn't want to admit that it was like so that i hung up this picture it's just it's so not good it's not terrible 
but it's just this blob thing. Oh my God. So anyway, that's my artistic ability, but I have different, I have different, uh, I'm different in a different creative way. So yeah, obviously absolutely. I was an actress and now I'm doing podcasting and I can write. I, I, mm. I you know, I've written books too. So, but I, ha- you know, I haven't created in the way that you've created as far as actual art or movies or whatever. So, but it was interesting talking to you. It really was, even though like we're together every day and I see you and all that, it was interesting to listen especially to your uh the the feeling that you get from the statues and the movie paraphernalia in your office it was an interesting yeah, yeah. take on it and i agree yeah. with it and i you know i mean i think that whatever we can do to keep ourselves happy especially when you're in, you know when you're completely immersed in politics all day long mm-hmm. you need to have things that are fun and positive and light and so mm-hmm. that's something that is fun and positive and light so it's yeah, awesome. I'd also, I just wanted to add, too, that I, I don't festoon the actual common living space of our apartment right. with this shit. I keep it uh, segregated to my office. <laughs> so just so anyone's concerned, I'm not forcing it upon Kimberly. Well, so. I, I have, you know, I have my opinions, too, so I would be like, no. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And I wouldn't do that. I'm not an Well, animal. like, you do have in your, uh, above your desk you have yeah. a picture of the civil war and there's like dead people in it i'm like i don't want that in the living room <laughs> well he's not he's not dead yet well uh, almost dead close to close to dead almost dead and that they will be dead soon so that so the answer is no i can't move this into the other no room. i don't i don't want pictures of war in the living room <laughs> okay and it's not to uh degrade or or say anything negative about because obviously we didn't get to this and that's another thing we can talk about because you have a lot of knowledge about the civil war and yeah. it's it's something that's very close to you you know you're not close but you know what i mean i'm just uh I'm so great great grandfather fought in the Civil War. Right. There you go. Of course. And And, and it's you're very interested in. And in fact, when when we go, my father, I spoke to my father not too long ago and I was talking about, you know, going to Gettysburg with you. And he said, oh, the next time you guys go, I want to go with you. And so uh, Mm -hmm. because because we had gone to Antietam. Yeah. Together. And I and I told him, I said, well, it's great to go and Harper's Ferry. And I told him that when, you know, we go to Gettysburg, it's like you're like a guide. You're able to point out all these different things, all these historical sites and points of interest. And so it's, it's awesome to go with you because I never knew. Like, I didn't know much about the Civil War. Pretty much what Mm -hmm. I've known. I know I learned from movies and you and (laughs) and, and watching the Shelby Foote stuff. Uh, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. I've learned it through being with you. And so it's it's totally fascinating. But again, like for me, the idea of war, I'm not a big war person. I don't like to watch war movies. There's a few exceptions, just like with Star Wars and everything. There's a few exceptions. You know, I think like Platoon was good. Full Metal Jacket was good. But it's depressing. You know, it's just yeah, it's a depressing well, the, the subject. Civil war, the Civil War is different insofar as uh, I believe an understanding of the United States yes. requires an understanding right. of the Civil War. Uh, absolutely. So I feel like uh, studying politics, studying history, you have to know the Civil War. It's yes. one of those requirements. It's like you have to know the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. You have to know the Revolutionary Period, the Founding Fathers. And, uh, you know, there's certain periods of time, the Civil Rights Movement. It's, in order to understand this country, you have mm-hmm. to understand these pivotal moments, these uh, watershed moments. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I'm just so glad that you could be on my show today and that I can kind of like talk about stuff that's fun. So first of all, yes. thank you. And well, then, thank you for having me on. It's fun to answer questions about me. <laughs> and then uh, before I tell everybody where they can find me, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? 
Well, my Patreon, uh, which is a, a big fucking deal, my Patreon is patreon.com slash show, or you can just type in bobseskashow.com, and it takes you right to the Patreon page. Uh, or you can go to bobseska.com and click the all-caps Patreon link beneath the logo and then sign up for our bonus content there. There's a huge community of listeners. I love all of them. And, uh, you, you know, you not only get to listen to bonus content for the show, but then you also get to uh, interact with our amazing community of listeners there. So that's a lot of fun. Also, uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and my Instagram, which is one of my favorite places <laughs> now, Instagram. That's uh, the Bob Seska is in there. So and what is your what is your Twitter handle? <laughs> <laughs> which I always say with just like a groan. It's Bob Seska and then an underscore and then the word go. I have don't even ask me why. Don't even ask me why. Well, <laughs> well, of course you can find me at, on Twitter at author Kimberly K I M B E R L E Y, and I have books. I make I made books, and they're on Amazon. So just go to Amazon, check my name Kimberly A Johnson, and you'll find them. You'll find uh, Peyton's Choice, which is a book about teen abortion, and The Virgin Diaries, which is a book about first time sex experience. And I just love to write books about teenage sex. <laughs> yes. I like to make books about teenage sex. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for listening, everybody. Don't forget, I'm going to record Kimberly's after party after we uh, do this. So stick around for that, all the patrons. And thank you, Bob. Thank you. Thank you.